as you know, we're talking um, each week on the disciples and the apostles. And um, Rich asked if I'd cover him and I'd talk on Peter today. So today we're looking at Peter, and I'm looking at Peter through the book of 2 Peter. Um, And it's only a very small um, epistle, there's three chapters in it. Um, And I found I learnt so much about Peter, I learnt so much about his character, I learnt so much about how we should approach life through his approach in this scripture. And of course the bit that was read was just this little kind of snapshot and I will actually delve into other bits of it because it just gives such a good picture of what the guy was about. The reality is when he wrote this letter, he wrote it and he knew he was about to die. Jesus had revealed that he was about to be martyred. And, and he writes this letter and he kind of covers three areas. He talks about what we should be like, what we should do, what we should focus on. He talks about what we should not go near, what we should, what we should move away from, the, things that, the, the false prophecies that we should ignore. And he also talks about the future and the promise and the promise of Jesus coming back. So I'm gonna cover my little talk just in, in, in three areas. The light of the truth, which I feel we've heard so much about in the worship this morning. The first area is gonna be the light of the truth. The second area is going to be the darkness of false, of false teaching. And the third area is going to be the promise of a new dawn. And the more I thought about this, I completely got what Peter was doing, because I, I have had this thought myself. If I found out I was, I'd got a terminal illness and I hadn't got long to left, and I have genuinely thought this thought prior to writing this, I would write letters to my kids and to Mark. And I would go over and explain again my encounter with God. I've told them all, but I would put it into paper in detail. And I would encourage them to keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith. And trust that we would see each other again in glory in the presence of Jesus. And this is kind of what Peter's doing. He's doing this reflection back on his life, especially looking back at the transfiguration, the stuff that was really special to him. And he's putting it on paper and he's like, this is it guys, this is it. So he's talking about the the meaning of life, the relevance of life, how we should live life. Um, Which brings me to a parable. I think it might be in here somewhere. It's the, um, the parable of the caveman and the red Ferrari. I think if you look hard enough, you might find it. There was once a really, really rich man, and he was so rich, he thought, what can I do with all my money? And he thought, I know, I'm gonna build myself a time machine. So he, he invents and he spends all this money and he builds this, this TARDIS. And he thinks, right, I've got this time machine, what can I do with it? And he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to kind of Stone Age times and I'll take a shiny red Ferrari and I will give it and I will leave it as a gift in front of a cave for a caveman. So he gets a red Ferrari, gets it in his TARDIS, goes back in time, nighttime falls, he leaves the red Ferrari outside the cave and then he goes and he hides in his time machine, makes himself invisible and he watches because he's really excited. And this caveman comes out and he sees his red Ferrari and he thinks, what's the meaning of this? What's this gift for? And he touches it and he strokes it. He's never seen anything so smooth. He's never seen red paint. Taps the glass, 
what's this? Never seen glass before. He goes in, he tells his wife, picture Freddie Flintstone, I can't think what his wife was called, pulls her out, and he's like, look at this, look at this gift, what do we do with this gift? That, was it Thelma, Wilma? Wilma, Wil, yeah, Wilma. He thought, look at this gift, and they have a chat about it, and, and that night they get all their sheepskin blankets, and they drag them out into the Ferrari, and they treat it like a caravan. And the man's in the TARDIS, and he's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to do with it. You don't sleep in it, it's not a caravan. He says, I know. They need a manual to tell them what to do with life. But, sorry, what to do with the Ferrari. So he, in his time machine, he goes back to present day and he gets the manual, what a Ferrari is about, how to, do, how to look after a Ferrari, what you do with a Ferrari. And he goes back to prehistoric time. And then when they're off hunting, he leaves a book on the bonnet of the Ferrari. He thinks, right, they've got a word now. They now know what the meaning of a Ferrari is. They now know what that gift is. And he gets back in his TARDIS and he sits there and he's all excited in his waiting. And he thinks, I've forgotten something. There's no fuel in the tank to get it going. It needs something inside. So he goes back in his time machine and he flies back and he goes back and he gets himself a, 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 a fuel of diesel or whatever. I don't know what Ferrari's using. And he goes back to prehistoric times. I'm sure they don't use diesel, do they? No, I can tell by the laughter. And he goes back and he leaves his petrol by the Ferrari. And the meaning of life and, 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 and the gift of life, there's ways that we should use it. And, he's, and, 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 and that parable, and perhaps Jesus did write it, I don't know, but the reality is that, that we have, our, God gave us life, and that is a gift. And he gave us the word, we have our manual. And he gave us the fuel inside us, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And Peter, in these letters, he's trying to focus their attention on what to do with it and what, it's not to, not, what not to do with it. So, my first area, the light of truth. I'm going to quickly take a, a couple of lines from Thessalonians. When Christians die, we have this promise. It's, it's not the end, it's a triumphant exodus to be with God. And in 1 Thessalonians, we have this promise in chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus with those who have fallen asleep in him. And I see this personally at family funerals. My family don't have any faith, as in my, my, my parents and my siblings. And we go to a funeral and you have to wear black. And it has to be sombre. And if you don't, woe betide you. Because it is the end. It is the full stop. There is no hope. There is nothing to look forward to. There is no connection with God. In contrast to Mark's family, it is such a celebration of life. It is a praise that they have gone through the gates of glory and that they're, and that they're with the Lord. And, and, and Peter is kind of going, trust in the light of the truth. And he looks back at the transfiguration, which was the, the little bit that was read. And the reality is he's going, I was there. I was an eyewitness. I was up that mountain with James and John. I saw it. It's true. It's real. It's guaranteed. And if you think about it, he had this kind of 
snapshot, or if you're trendy, Snapchat, of, of, of what's of the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And he had this preview, you know, about the second coming. He will come back in glory. And the reality is, I mean, it, it, it must have been like a sensory overload because, you know, he goes up this mountain with James and John. He sees his best mate illuminate like a light bulb, like that wouldn't have blown his mind on his own. You know, then he sees Moses and Elijah, you know, you know resembling the, 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 the law and the prophets, turn up and talk, like that would have been the second whammy. That would have, you know, again, completely blown his mind. It would be like being an historian and having, I don't know, Nelson and Queen Victoria walk in. That would have been like, whoa. And then, third whammy, voice, the voice of God from heaven. And yes, you know, he said the wrong thing and he's on about, oh, we'll build shelters. And he, and he, and he yeah, he said the wrong thing. But... I think he was so overwhelmed by that moment. And and I feel like I need to be fair to him. You know, he wasn't the only person who was overwhelmed by the supernatural. You know, when Gabriel turned up in front of um, Zechariah and and told him that his wife was going to have a son, was going to have John the Baptist, he says, you know, you're going to be a dad. And he's like, I really don't think so. I'm a bit old for that. And he's like, no, trust me, Elizabeth's going to be a mum. He's like... Really think you could be wrong there. She's a bit old. He's like, no, and you're, you're going to call this baby John, and you know, and Zechariah stands there and he says, give me a sign. He's got an angel stood in front of him. Like, <laughs> wrong thing to say, but you know, humans have these encounters and they blow their minds completely. Blow their minds. It was a signs and wonders overload, but the reality is, Peter is referring back to it and he's retelling it and he's reliving it because he is saying this is the truth. Jesus was here. Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was resurrected. As part of my studies, um, one of the things we've had to look into is that anybody who um, doesn't agree with Christianity, they have to disprove the resurrection because that is the white elephant in the room. If the resurrection was fake, we've all got it wrong. But if the resurrection was true, we've all got it right. And a lot of the scholars, they come up with, there can only be four possibilities. There can only have been four answers to an empty tomb. The first one is that Jesus' enemies stole his body. But the reality is that was the last thing that they wanted. That's why they moved this two-ton stone in front of it and put these two guards or three guards in front of it. They, that would have just fueled the rumours that they didn't want. So if it wasn't Jesus' enemies that stole his body, then was it Jesus' friends that stole his body? Well, the reality was, out of his 12 disciple mates, Judas killed himself, John was writing Revelation, Sunning himself and, uh, and elsewhere, but the reality is, ten of them, ten of them were martyred. If they had stolen his body, if it was a hoax, then I'm pretty sure at the point of them having a rusty six-inch nail hammered through them, they'd have gone, "We didn't. We, it's, it, 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 it's, it's wrong. It's wrong. We, we've, we've, we've pulled off this joke." But none of them did. Here, Peter is writing, knowing he's about to die, and he's still standing to the truth. Jesus was here. Jesus was resurrected. Jesus was transfigured. So if Jesus' enemies didn't steal his body, 
if his friends didn't steal his body? The third option, a lot of the scholars said, well, maybe, maybe he just fainted on the cross. It's a possibility, let's consider it. He fainted on the cross. So he fainted, he's experienced crucifixion, they've laid him in the tomb, and the reality is he's come back, he's, he's woken up, he's revived. So after being crucified and speared, he rolls away a two-ton stone and then fights off the guards. Quite unlikely. And the only fourth possibility for the empty tomb was God resurrected his son. And this is what Peter's pointing at. This is the light of the truth. But what Peter also looks at is the darkness of false teaching. It's actually in the chapter afterwards, but I'm going to touch on it. Peter is encouraging people to sift through the truth from the lies. And in chapter two, he talks about how sexual immorality has become the norm. He talks about how blaspheming has become the norm. He talks about how greed has become the norm. And it kind of breaks my heart because I, I, I read those and I think that is so like today. Well, you know, even with Christians, pick and choose which bits they want to stick to but which bits they'll ignore because actually it doesn't quite fit in with the lifestyle. And also there, was, there were false teachings from the Sadducees that the second coming wasn't going to happen. And Peter's like, no, I've seen, I've seen a snapshot. He is coming back in glory. And quite often... We can think if only we lived in the first century, it would have been so much easier to believe. If only we'd watched Jesus walk along the beach, getting the sand between his toes, dishing out the bread, doing the miracles, healing the blind. If only we'd been there, we wouldn't have doubted. It would have been so much easier. But the reality was, some of them had, been, had given up believing in Jesus' return. Some of them had been eyewitnesses and still the doubt was seeping in. And the doubt seeps in with us sometimes. It's interesting, like, there's a little line, and I, I just feel I want to touch on it, in verse 17. Peter talks about false prophets. And he says, these people, they are like springs without water. And like mists driven by a storm. And the reality is, that for somebody who's thirsty, a cloud in the sky is no good. No matter how much mist is up there, if you're thirsty, that's no good. For somebody who's thirsty, a well that's got no water in it, that's false hope. Peter is saying, discern, sift through, follow the light, beware of the darkness of false teaching. The reality is 30 years, roughly, after the transfiguration, because this was written about 65 AD, it was still sharp in his mind. It was still his lamp for him personally. He's going, what I saw on that mountain, it wasn't embellishment, it wasn't speculation, it happened. He's, it's like he's saying, I've got the t-shirt. You know, there was me, James, John, Jesus, Moses, Elijah and God, and you weren't there. He's like, he's pulling rank on the false prophets. He's going, I was there, trust me, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. He uses his historical knowledge of Jesus and the encounters and the real life experiences got to impart the importance of what is true and what is false. There was um, a pastor, and I, and, and I wrote down a quote that, he, that he, um, he made, and he said, if we reject any part of the word of God, 
and deny anything that it clearly teaches. We set ourselves up to be the judge of the truth. In other words, if we pick bits and we go, yeah, that bit's right, but actually that bit's wrong, we're kind of calling God a liar and saying that we know better than him that wrote his own word. Luther said, either we believe God's word because it is God's word, or we make ourselves out to be God. I thought about that and, and the, the teaching that we get from the world today, it's so askew compared to this. Generally, what we get through the internet, through laptops, through mobile phones. There's a, there's a woman I know and she really makes me laugh. She was on about some law that they'd passed, I can't even remember what it was, but it obviously didn't align with scripture. And she said, I want to get this book and I want to go in the House of Commons and she's about 80. She said, I want to throw it on the floor and I want to go, that's the law. I don't know what you think you're making up, but that's the law. And, and but so many people have moved away from this. I feel today that a big false teaching that we've got is, is this kind of moral relativism, I can't say it. Relativism, I can spell it, but I can't say it. Where... People can reject God's truth, and as long as morally they're okay, then life's fine. And I had this really interesting conversation slash debate touching on argument with a woman in a pub. And she, she said, well, as long as I'm good, that's what's important. As long as, I, and it was almost like there's this merit system. Well, yeah, I know I might sin a bit, but as long as I'm good, like that cancels out that, so I'm okay. And I was like, no, no, no. Jesus' merits are the only currency that God recognises. We can't earn our way into glory. Jesus did it. Jesus paid the price. We can't do anything. It's justification by faith. It's the righteousness of his blood. It's the merits that he's earned. It's not like a, we can cancel them out. Do you know what I mean? Like some kind of chart. But that is a teaching that seems to to have seeped into society. As long as I'm a good person, that's all right. But good people aren't necessarily saved people. I don't deny that they're not good. I don't deny that they try to do good, good deeds. But Jesus, Jesus is the price. Jesus paid the price. Which brings me on to the promise of a new dawn. A day will dawn when Jesus returns. The day of the Lord will happen. The day of judgment will happen. It says in verse 19, I'll just read that bit again. We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus is our morning star. In the meantime, for us that have got faith, he's rising in our hearts as well at the moment. Peter saw the transfiguration. It was a lamp and it was a light to him personally. But it shone a light on what the future held, on what was to come, on Jesus' second return. 
Even when Peter's facing death, he is still focusing on that lamp. In the parable of the ten virgins um, with their lamps and the oil, something hit me quite often. Something hits me quite often when I read it, and they're all waiting for the bridegroom. So they all know about the bridegroom. They all know that he's coming back. So they're all people of faith. They all have a lamp. They all have a light to guide them. But only half of them are ready. And you think how many Christians, whether they were christened, baptised, dedicated, are given Bibles. You know, the lovely little white ones with the silver writing on and their baby, and, and don't open them. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And, and, and there, it's, it's almost like this kind of champagne Christianity, like it's hatched, matched and dispatched, but you don't have to go in between and you don't have to ever bother reading the book. You know, five of those virgins weren't prepared. This is our lamp now for us. I, was, I also found this... Um, this quote, and it was a chappie who was um, living a death sentence. He was on death row. And he's obviously got time to reflect, I would imagine, sat there in his cell. And he wrote this book, and he said, the secret to a long and happy life is don't die. Which, I suppose, in his situation, perhaps that clarity just kind of pulled together, you know. But the reality is there's a better secret in John chapter 1, verses 25 and 26, a secret the Holy Spirit reveals, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That's God's promise of a new dawn to us. So I'll just wrap up and recap. This letter to Peter, it's a letter of remembrance. I actually thought when I was putting these together, I thought two weeks ago on Remembrance Sunday, I should have done this and and perhaps I should be doing Silas today. But it's a letter of remembrance. He's looking back. He's looking back for guidance as to what's coming in the future. And he looks looks at his life and and, 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 and it, it, it... it gives us these three clear messages. Number one, the light of the truth. The transfiguration did happen. He got the t-shirt, he was there. The resurrection did happen, it was real. He saw Jesus afterwards. This word is our lamp. It's our lamp for our feet today. Peter warns us, beware of the darkness of false teaching. And like I said, doubt had seeped in in the first century. It seeps in now. Beware of what comes, what comes into your minds through your screens, your laptops, the internet, mobiles. Being good won't buy people merits to get into heaven. Jesus did that. Jesus' blood is the only currency. And number three, the promise of a new dawn. Jesus will be back. He said it. He doesn't lie. So if he says he's coming back, he's coming back. God gave us this promise in John. 
and we can cling to it. And the reality is Peter clung to the truth right up until the end. He knew he was imminently facing death and he didn't waver. He did become that rock that Jesus prophesied. He did stand firm. He did say, I saw all this stuff and it was true and it was real and, it, and, and he will return. Take a leaf out of Peter's book and stand strong. Amen.